Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Rappuccini's Daughter. Uh, we're going to be covering this in two episodes. I should also say that this story was published in 1844, uh, and this will be our recap episode. Yeah, and this story was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters, and I'll say right now, I'm really glad it was. I loved this story. I'm excited to be talking about it. Uh, this came in third on the the vote. Uh, we've actually done the other two stories without telling you all the results of that vote. So we'll, we'll do that now. So this came in third. What came in first was the uh, Jack Vance Dying Earth story, the second Jack Vance Dying Earth story, Miserian the Magician. We've done that already. We put that on uh, Patreon for Patreon supporters. And what came in second was The Portrait by Nikolai Gogol, which we've done already. Uh, we're also going to be doing A Night in Malneant by Clark Ashton Smith and Metz Engerstein by Poe. So quite a bit of 19th century uh, made it through on this ballot. Indeed it did. Uh, there were a few things that did not make it. Stories by Algernon Blackwood, T.E.D. Klein, Auguster Leth, and, and Jeff Vandermeer, and others. We'll keep those on the ballot, I'm sure, and, and find ways to cover those uh, for our Patreon supporters. Uh, but I'm really excited to do this story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Maybe all of us know Hawthorne best for uh, the excruciating uh, introduction we had to him <laughs> in high school, reading The House on Seven Gables and then The Scarlet Letter uh, with no real context of him as a writer. I discovered more of him in college with, you know, these story, stories like Goodman Brown, but I've never read this story. And this is really part of a period in his career that literary critics refer to as the Mance period. He was rented a house and wrote short stories in it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that when we contextualize the story, but I really enjoyed this story. It's very strange. It takes place in Italy. Uh, and Hawthorne also gives us a brief and strange commentary on himself and his own writing practice and style in the introduction to this story, which is part of the story. Uh, so that's probably where we're going to start here. Let's just get right into Rappuccini's daughter, Glenn. Yeah, right. Before we get to the actual story, there is this really strange, I guess, prologue, right? And we, we do need to talk about it, though. Yeah, you know, I could see where uh, someone putting this story in an anthology, like not a, not a dedicated Hawthorne collection, but an anthology of weird fiction stories or something might cut this because it, it it's not maybe, or at least doesn't seem maybe like it's necessary for the story, though I think we'll feel differently about it. But this prologue is a fake editor's note that's written by Hawthorne, and it appeared before the short story when it was published in the Democratic Review, right? So it, this was part of the original publication, was this this weird editor's note. And what Hawthorne is doing, he's pretending that Rappuccini's daughter is actually a translation from a French story by someone who is named uh, Aubepine, which is was really just the French word for Hawthorne, right? And much of this fake editor's note is an essay on Hawthorne's own works, all of them given French names. And Hawthorne uses this opportunity to engage in a bit of self-deprecating humor. It's, it's actually quite funny, right, if you're into that sort of thing. But there are also some interesting comments that I think prep us for the story. And, and Brandon, I imagine you're going to use at least some of these comments in the discussion episode. So we should probably point them out now before we even really get going, really get into the actual story itself. So Hawthorne, or, or you know, well, the, the fake editor here, right, says that Hawthorne is prone to the use of allegory. He also says that the story was originally titled, uh, in French, it was originally titled Beatrice or The Beautiful Poisoner. But you know, for some reason to be published here in this magazine, it's been changed to Rappuccini's Daughter. Uh, and then there is also a comment on Hawthorne's relationship to transcendentalism, which we should certainly talk about. Yeah, I, we will be talking a lot about transcendentalism a little bit here, but certainly much more in our discussion episode. And this editor's note is, as you pointed out, Glenn, strange and self-deprecating. It really reminds me of something that Jorge Luis Borges might do. But it does allow Hawthorne to position himself in his context and also to acknowledge the contemporary critical response to his work. I mean, he got into like flame wars with Edgar Allan Poe and stuff. <laughs> and so Hawthorne was a reader of his own uh, critics and was also a critic himself. Uh, but 
as I pointed out earlier, this story was written while Hawthorne was renting a manse, which is a parishioner's house, a house of a clergyman of a church. And he says that this house was previously rented by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote his essay, Nature, while staying there. And as I said, these stories are considered to be part of the the manse period or, or the manse collection of writings by Hawthorne. Um, this house was also on the on the Concord River, which you know has huge connections to Henry David Thoreau and, and Walden and his writings about the Merrimack and, and Concord. So Hawthorne is absolutely situating himself within this uh, contemporary movement of American transcendentalism. And before I talk a little bit about that, I also just want to point out here that this story has a different title in the quote unquote original language. And maybe in the discussion, if we have time, we'll want to consider why Hawthorne changed the title for the American audience and, and maybe look at how this change of title asks us to shift our perception of the various agents at play in the story. Why Rappuccini's daughter instead of Beatrice. Why would that be more palatable for an American audience than just saying the woman who has agency? <laughs> right. Or, you know, why? Yeah. I mean, we, maybe we can get into this more in the discussion. We may come up with some other alternative titles possibly for this story. But it is a really interesting move to give us that. Yeah, I think so. And, and we'll definitely be looking at uh, agency in the discussion as well. And of course, all of that in the context of American transcendentalism. But let's talk about that for a moment. The main takeaway uh, that I want to point out here about how Hawthorne contextualizes himself in this movement is in his relationship to transcendentalism. He calls it unfortunate or some sense. And so I'll talk about American transcendentalism. American transcendentalism was a philosophical and a literary movement that really began with Ralph Waldo Emerson and continued on with folks like Henry David Thoreau and, and Margaret Fuller. Hawthorne, Herman Melville, and Walt Whitman are really associated with the movement on the literary side. And transcendentalism, in, in some ways, maybe in the easiest way to talk about in terms of literature, is an American response to... Uh, romanticism, which focused especially on the freedoms and responsibilities of the individual and their inner life. Uh, it's an artistic movement that is directed at the beauty of the natural world instead of sort of a, a fear of it, though that fear is also very much a part of romanticism and American transcendentalism. But it's not quite fear. It's really an experience called awe. Awe is not purely a positive emotion, uh, but it can lead to us to a sense of horror as well. And the great literary exploration of this is uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, but transcendentalism, like romanticism, as I said, is interested in the inner lives of humans, but its proponents were really deeply focused on goodness. And not only to cultivate goodness within themselves, some of these texts read kind of like a, a virtue ethic, an essay on virtue ethics, which is the cultivation of virtue or excellence within the self. Uh, but also they were focused on how good could be cultivated in others as a society. And this is uh, a movement that was looking at what we'd consider the promise of America. And we'll we'll dig more into that in our discussion. So anyway, as a result, many of the American transcendentalists were politically situated as progressive thinkers in their day because they wanted to reform those structures in society that held people back from cultivating their own goodness or following their own genius, their spirit that called them to excellence. Margaret Fuller, for instance, was a key player in early women's rights movements and did a lot of work with women in prisons as well. She's an astonishing figure in American history in the 19th century. And if you're not familiar with her, I recommend you look up her and her work. Uh, and you know, of course, Thoreau's work on civil disobedience was referred to by leaders of several great social reform movements and social rights movements in the 20th century. It was the playbook for the civil rights movement, for Gandhi's social change movement in India, uh, though I think, unfortunately, we've gotten far away from Thoreau's ideal of civil disobedience uh, today, which is something that upsets me. In any event, the takeaway here is that it should be no surprise then 
that Hawthorne relies on allegory because moral stories that rely on allegories are one way to alert an audience to their relationship and response to moral questions and to maybe cultivate the virtue or goodness in the audience as well by having them ask the question and give them something to think about with regard to it. And so this story asks its audience to consider what may be some unreflectively held moral assumptions or attitudes towards social movements that are taking place, but also about other people in the world. So we'll get to a bunch of that in the discussion. Yeah, that's an awesome primer on, hey, what we should be thinking about while we go through this, because the the story proper, which we will we will get to right now, but the story proper doesn't seem, I think, on the surface to be really all that connected to transcendentalism. But I think that in the discussion, we're going to, we'll, we'll be able to tease all of that out. I mean, you, you said you wanted to talk about, you know, the promise of America, but hey, this is a story that takes place in Italy, right? This is the story of a guy named uh, Giovanni Guasconti. He's a young man from Naples, but he's recently moved to Padua in order to attend the university there. So, you know, what is that going to have to do with the promise of America? You know, we'll tease out in the discussion. Well, the deal with our our main character here with Giovanni is that he doesn't have a lot of money. I mean, he's, you know, a student. So he has to rent a room in an old mansion that used to belong to an aristocratic family uh, and seems to be at least several centuries old. And all of that, that sounds pretty cool to me, right? This is the place that I might like to rent. But Giovanni actually Giovanni actually thinks of it as gloomy. Uh, maybe the mansion is not in good shape. It's it's decrepit. The whole thing has a real gothic feel to it. In fact, I still think I probably would choose to <laughs> choose to rent that even if I could afford something better. Uh, but in any case, what really matters is that behind the mansion and visible out of Giovanni's window is a serious business garden. It is dense with all sorts of plants. Uh, some of them are in the ground. Others are in pots. The, the whole thing, though, is verdant. It's, it's lively. And it is a real contrast to the gloomy room. The garden belongs to a dude named Rappuccini, who is an aging medical doctor of some renown here in Padua. He reportedly grows these plants for their medicinal properties, and as Giovanni looks out the window, he, he watches an old man work in the garden with great care, almost like a scholar who is studying the plants. He's very careful not to touch any of them with his skin or, or to breathe in any of their odors. You know, that's that's curious. That's some strange behavior there. Maybe it's going to matter, but uh, we'll, we'll get there eventually, right? Uh, so at this point, the, the old man calls for Beatrice to join him. And of course, she's a beautiful young woman. And this is Rappuccini, and it is his daughter. So now we have got the title character introduced here. So... Yeah, she's she's beautiful, uh, very much like the garden itself. Uh, and in fact, Giovanni even thinks of her as the human sister to these flowers. Uh, Giovanni, by the way, right, he's just hanging out in his window, creeping on his neighbors. He's definitely dropping some eaves here as well. So we get actually a bit of overheard conversation here. And the gist of it is that Rappuccini is getting too old to care for a particular plant without hurting himself doing it. And so Beatrice is going to have to take over the care of this very special plant at this point. And and now Beatrice actually calls this plant her sister and, and even says that this plant is her breath of life. And this is, a, I think, a really great scene. It's very densely described by Hawthorne. I, I think it's an awesome awesome setup. I loved this opening. I did too. The language in this story is so lush and beautiful. It has this sort of Shakespearean quality to it. There's almost a sense of it feeling like a, a stage play at times. We have these asides. We have people listening into others who are kind of in their own scene. And it's full of this beautiful visual language. I mean, I really felt like I was reading a play almost at times while I was reading this, or maybe I should say watching a play. It's that easy to get lost in the prose and just be in the setting. Hawthorne is a real master here of description. That's uh, not my favorite thing about him. I mean, I think it often gets in his way. I don't <laughs> think it gets in the way of this story, though. This whole opening is also really chock full of illusions. We've got Dante, and that matters because Giovanni's 
creeping obsession is with a girl called Beatrice, who's Dante's ideal woman. I mean, like the first sentence mentions Dante here, Italy, the home of Dante. Uh, we've got a reference to Vertumnus, and this is the Roman god of the seasons and flowers and trees and other stuff too. Uh, and maybe he's the figure that is represented in the ruined fountain in Rappuccini's gardens. And this matters. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, Vertumnus disguises himself as an old woman in order to get into a garden and seduce the young nymph Pomona. So we'll have to keep our eyes out, I think, for any parallels to that tale within the Hawthorne story (laughs) here. And we're also given reference to Rappuccini's garden as being a sort of reverse Eden, the Eden of this present world. In a fallen world, what could paradise create but poison. And so that is also on the table in terms of illusions. Well, I love this idea that this is actually basically a Shakespearean rom-com, at least at the setup, because you're right, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's totally true, right? That we've, we've got like even a balcony scene here. We can see the setup, right? The young man, young woman, young man is super into beautiful young woman. Uh, her dad, though, turns out to be in the profession that uh, the you know young man wants to go into, uh, is renowned in that profession. So we can see the setup there where he's going to have some power and that maybe the young man's going to have to choose between uh, does he want to get his you know medical doctorate or does he want to run off with his uh, you know his academic supervisor's daughter right <laughs> I don't know that's the, that's a lost Shakespeare play that I would I would love to see and of course I don't know one third of Shakespeare's rom-coms also are all taken from Ovid so you know the connections are there I hadn't thought about it before but that's great yeah it is really cool I think a lot of the dialogue and the way uh, the spoken language is treated in the story is straight from playwriting 101 too, which is pretty cool. It just adds a lot to the story, I think. But we also, what we learn about Rappuccini also in this section is fascinating as well. And this gets fleshed out in the story as we continue to read it. Dr. Rappuccini acts dispassionately and cautiously towards his plants. And it is only the beautiful Beatrice who can handle them, especially the one that she refers to as her sister, as we pointed out. And this is what Beatrice says of her sister plant. I mean, this is, uh, you know, maybe the setup for the whole story here, this kind of, uh, I don't know, setting up of allegory. She says, yes, my sister, my splendor. It shall be Beatrice's task to nurse and serve thee, and thou shalt reward her with thy kisses and perfumed breath, which to her is as the breath of life. And since we're, we were just primed to see this garden as a kind of reverse Eden, a corrupt Eden, I think Hawthorne is doing a really good job of foreshadowing just what he means when he says breath of life here. Uh, there's a lot of reversals <laughs> taking place. And I should say here, too, that, that as, you, as you pointed out, Glenn, Hawthorne really just lays on the associations between Beatrice and, and flowers pretty thickly here. I mean, at least five pages of this story are about just that. Uh, but, you know, also just to kind of tighten up what's going on here, Giovanni is, of course, immediately in love because he's a college kid with nothing to do but look out the window as, at his pretty neighbor. Uh, plus, it's it's nighttime, which Hawthorne points out is the time when uh, ideas seem great, but when you wake up in the morning, maybe they're not. So Giovanni wakes up the next morning and is immediately skeptical of the feelings that he developed overnight. And besides, he has things to do today. You know, we went into this story, of course, right, knowing that we were doing it for our weird fiction podcast. So even though I had never read this story before, I knew I was in for something weird. And, you know, what is indeed being laid on thick here is the association, as you say, with the, the flowers and Beatrice. And it's real, real clear as, you know, I don't know, someone who's read a lot of Batman that Look, this is poison ivy. Hey, man, right? you this stole is, my joke, Glenn. You stole <laughs> oh, my <sorry>. joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. You should do it again later whenever you were planning to do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll just do a callback to it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Listeners can vote on who did it better. But, but right, like that's so obvious to us here. But I think a contemporary reader would really feel like this is being set up to be a sort of romantic story. And, you know, I don't know how much it's true in the 1840s, but 
I've been uh, revisiting some Henry James lately, uh, and also you know we're, we've been we've done some Robert W. Chambers lately as well. So I've been thinking about American writers later in the 19th century and how many of their stories are about um, how awesome European women are. <laughs> and there seems to be something to that here too, right? That there's Hawthorne kind of winking at his his audience here in this way, where we know that he's setting up what's going to be a horrific, tragic story but has all these trappings of something romantic and something comedic here, which is, which is really just awesome. And I, I don't think I appreciated that enough because I was clearly in the mindset when I you know, started on this story of it's going to be scary and bad, right? Something bad is going to happen in the story, which it is. But uh, we should, before we get on with the bad stuff, right, we should, we should actually get some information about Rappuccini and his daughter. Like this is something we need as an audience, in fact. So Hawthorne has his character, he has Giovanni, go have dinner with uh, a friend of his father's who happens to live in Padua. And this family friend is a medical doctor. And so that means that he knows some things about Rappuccini. But what matters the most is that Rappuccini is a, a mad scientist. And in fact, I'm just going to read some text here. Here is how this doctor friend describes Rappuccini. He cares infinitely more for science than for mankind. His patients are interesting to him only as subjects for some new experiment. He would sacrifice human life, his own among the rest, or whatever else was dearest to him for the sake of adding so much as a grain of mustard seed to the great heap of his accumulated knowledge. And the, the doctor friend here goes on to say that what Rappuccini is keenly interested in his poisons. His garden is grown for poisons, and he has even bred new and extremely potent poisonous plants. And it's not that he's a villain, right? It's it's that he believes that poisonous plants themselves can be medicinal. And this uh, this family friend even admits that Rappuccini has actually a few times pulled off a really miraculous cure that other doctors couldn't do. And finally, we learned that every single young man in Padua knows of the beauty of Beatrice, the beauty of Rappuccini's daughter, but that very few have actually seen her because she never leaves the house. And, you know, maybe we'll learn why eventually. Yeah, I mean, maybe. It might be that kind of story. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what, what surprised me most about this section of the story was Hawthorne really leaning into the mad scientist trope. And hey, maybe science was something that was really on people's minds in the 19th century. I suppose, I don't know, maybe cadavers were being donated to universities or but the, the relationship <laughs> between science and, and death had changed on some level or what was acceptable in terms of like, uh, I don't know, loss of life in terms of knowledge gain. I don't know the history of this at all. I'm making assumptions based on reading Frankenstein a couple times. But you know, Ra Rappuccini, it's clear here that Rappuccini is a guy who, who views humans as subjects of his experiments. And so what is really going on here is that nothing is beyond the limits of experimentation. There's nothing you can do in, in service of experimentation that is going to violate a moral norm anymore. And in part, we see that Hawthorne's concern is that uh, there's a, a, a focus on scientific advancement, on purely scientific advancement, might be ignoring some other really important things about life, like what it means to be a human being or what dignity is after death and, and maybe all sorts of other questions that are caught up in this. And that's to say that a human being in this transcendental thought, in a lot of religious thought, is more than the sum of its empirical parts, that which can be taste, touched, felt, explored uh, in, in a material sense. So Dr. Baglioni here, who's the name of the family friend, speaks as though he believes that, that Dr. Rappuccini has broken some sort of sacred value that is associated with healing and the medical arts. And Baglioni claims that we can't just look to Rappuccini's success in these moments of, of creating cures, but that Rappuccini must also be held accountable for his failures as well. And this is something I want us to keep in mind as we think about the call of genius and the role that plays in American transcendentalism. So in other words, Rappuccini's success doesn't absolve his individual responsibility for the poisons that he's created. So Rappuccini is clearly a kind of genius in this realm of dark botany and genetic 
splicing and breeding, <laughs> but he's following a course of life that he is well suited for. And this kind of behavior and attitude towards one's own guiding spirit, to one's genius, as I, as I mentioned before, are exactly the kind of thing that Emerson had in mind and the things that he promoted in self-reliance. And I'm going to read a brief section of it here just to keep us in the context of the intellectual, the popular intellectual scene of the American transcendental movement. And I think it will help prepare us for the discussion episode as well. So this is what Emerson writes. What I must do is all that concerns me, not what people think. This rule, equally arduous in actual and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is the harder, because you will always find those who think they know what is your duty better than you know it. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff in self-reliance about how this relates to maybe saying that, hey, I'll be the devil's child if some theologian is telling me exactly what I need to believe dogmatically about religion or spirituality or the calling for my life. It's where we get the phrase evil genius from. It's never explicitly used in Emerson, um, but there are implications that the the genius can maybe foment evil, not just good. And I think Hawthorne is concerned not just about the practical outcomes that flow from these men of genius, but also about the ideas that form the grounds through which genius can even be recognized. And that's transcendentalism, essentially, is struggling with these questions. Anyway, as we'll see, Giovanni being in love with Beatrice makes him unable to objectively evaluate Baglioni's claims, makes him perhaps unable to pursue his own genius. And this sense of being in love is going to inform Giovanni's actions and decisions in the story. So Hawthorne is looking at the question of what, in philosophical terms, are the a priori in the sense of the unexamined grounds within which our own practical in involvement in the world are given context. You know, I had, I had never really thought before about the extent to which mad scientist characters, just as an archetype, their their deal is this this sense of of hyper individualism, right? That that they they are what matters, right? They know what is best, and they are going to do do do, and there there don't need to be, there should not be, there ought not be any checks on them. Which, you know, I, I just never thought about the mad scientist as being basically like the Marlboro man, except with a doctorate. But like, that's that's what I took from that Emerson passage you just you just read there. I think that's that's awesome. Also, uh, Dark Botany is an anthology that I would read if someone wants to edit that. I, I need more stories about Dark Botany. Yeah, I uh, I was pleased to pull out that phrase uh, in, in service of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it's 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 been living in the, the library in my dreams. I just didn't know it. But uh, I would. <laughs> I would love to have that collection. <laughs> well, all right. So uh, back at home, uh, Giovanni sees Beatrice again in the, the garden, and he watches her secretly. She is caring for the plant that her father has turned over to her, and she calls it sister again. And she takes deep breaths from it, and she touches it with her bare hands, which, right, these were things that her father was definitely trying not to do. And when she cuts the purple flower from this plant, some, some liquid gets on a, a little lizard nearby, and that lizard dies, like, instantly. And then a butterfly enters the garden, and it also dies. It just drops dead mid-flutter. Eh, don't worry about that right now, though, because Giovanni, well, Giovanni's maybe not that worried about it. He's got other things on his mind, so he gets Beatrice's attention. Uh, he throws down a bouquet of flowers that he has in his room, and yeah, he flirts with her a little bit. But what really matters is that as she is returning into her house, the flowers that he has just given her, they wither and die. And it's really just been a matter of, of minutes. And, and right, so we know what is going on here at this point, maybe because we've read Batman, but it turns <laughs> out that Giovanni does too. He gets that she's got poison breath, maybe also poison touch, but he doesn't care. He's still just super into her. And, and frankly, the, the horror of her is as much a part of the excitement as her beauty. 
But he can't really pursue this, so he takes to exercising in order to get himself under control. Uh, in this case, exercising you know doesn't mean hitting the gym. It means long and vigorous walks around Padua. And it's in this context that he runs into the family friend again, this other medical doctor. And while they are talking on the street, uh, Rappuccini himself walks by and he gives a look, a serious business look at Giovanni. And the family friend, he sees this, and so he now knows that Rappuccini regards Giovanni as a science experiment. And so he cautions Giovanni. He really just wants Giovanni to nope out of there, to like get out of this house, go live somewhere else. But obviously, right, that's not going to happen because, hey, the story's about Rappuccini's daughter. Yeah, I mean... Giovanni has just caught the love bug here and he just cannot listen to reason. And you'd think that things that are obvious, like relationship red flags, like, hey, maybe the person you're into has a breath that kills living creatures. Uh, these things don't face Giovanni at all. And they don't even, they certainly don't face him enough to admit that, hey, maybe this uh, deadly breath woman is not ideal uh, in the way that he's building her up in his mind. I want to point out a few little uh, craft notes here. We Hawthorne does include some nymph imagery in the section as well, which keeps us in this realm of uh, a fable and, and myth. Uh, Giovanni wonders if Beatrice is, quote, one of those old beings of old classic fable that lived upon sweet odors. Uh, there's some more sisterhood with plant stuff going on, too. I mean, Hawthorne has just really tightly constructed the imagery and the illusions that he wants to uh, tease out in this story. I think it's uh, it's it's really well done. And I also want to say that in terms of romanticism, uh, Hawthorne has nailed that beauty versus awe distinction in Beatrice when Giovanni wonders as he's watching her if he should call her beautiful or inexpressibly terrible. Uh, and here, here's where I have my poison ivy joke, Glenn. I don't really have anything to say. <laughs> then, it, <laughs> then at this point, I was wondering if the creators of poison ivy had referenced this story at all. I think your your joke takes the cake here. Mine was just a, a statement. <laughs> well, but I do think it's actually a really good question, and uh, I don't know. Maybe that's something we can uh, we can do before we do the the discussion episode. I don't actually know which Batman writer created poison ivy. I'm not even sure when she shows up on the scene, though. I imagine it's the 70s. I imagine that she actually grows out of uh, environmentalism, would be my guess. So probably not actually someone who's read this story. On the other hand, right, all these writers are were English majors. Yeah, and uh, right. it turns out English majors have to read a lot of Hawthorne, at least if you're American. <laughs> That's so, right. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. we should, uh, we should find out about that. I, I like that you're calling attention to the nymph imagery here. I've just kind of blown past all of that. Again, because we've got so much. We have, I mean, literally, you know, a century and a half or so of literary history since this story to recognize that not only, you know, do I know I'm in a weird fiction story even before I get going, I immediately recognize that this is a mad scientist story. And so I know that we're in a type of science fiction story, even though Hawthorne is not really ever going to get into the like, you know, details of how Rappuccini has made his daughter, you know, poisonous somehow, how he's actually gone about creating, you know, poison ivy, essentially. We're not going to get the how of that, but we know that it is something that is done through principles of nature, right? Something that's done within the realm of, 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 of science and not something that's done within the realm of, you know, fantasy or something like that. But, but contemporary readers wouldn't necessarily have gone to that. And there's certainly no reason for the character Giovanni to be thinking along those lines, right? For him, this could be, and, and for contemporary readers, there's every chance that what's going to turn out to be going on here is, in fact, that uh, Beatrice and, and, and you know, Rappuccini as well. I don't know. They're dark elves or, you know, <laughs> you know fairies or, you know, uh, something that might actually even be ancient Greek, ancient Roman gods or something like that. You know, this could be a sort of urban fantasy story. They don't have all of the trappings that we have where we're recognizing this because, you know, this is an early version of this type of story of which we have read, you know, hundreds at this point. Yeah, exactly. And and the way that Hawthorne is really leaning on these illusions makes that seem entirely possible. These are isolated people. They don't interact with anybody else. We already have reference to the Vertumnus and Polona myth. And so a reader that's reading this is thinking, hey, this is kind of a naturalistic um, mythological tale. And I think the horror that is revealed at the end of this story is that this is the act of, of a man's creation. And that blow doesn't really hit us 
as content as readers now, but it may have uh, had more of a bit of a punch back back then. I do have a, another thing I want to point out about this section here. Prior to taking these vigorous walks, which you know I've taken a few lovesick long walks in my day, <laughs> uh, Giovanni tosses a bouquet of flowers down to Beatrice. So we know that Beatrice knows who Giovanni is at this point, and. I get the sense that she's kind of automatically in love with him too, but it's not for good reasons. It's because Giovanni is the only man that Beatrice has interacted with besides her father. And I I think it's fair to say at this point that Hawthorne is laying pretty heavily into this type of falling in love, this, this romantic obsession as a kind of poison. So that's an angle that we can look at this story from uh, when we get to the discussion as well. Yeah, we should uh, we should actually construct a uh, a playlist for Giovanni to be listening to out on these walks. You know, sad pop music, love Lauren pop music for him. We can uh, send it back in time and into into back into fictional time, I guess, for him to to get some comfort. But uh, but yeah, absolutely right. We're they're, they're definitely the moral of the story is going to be don't do this sort of thing at home, kids. Right as we uh, as we get to the end, and and we actually we're going to come right now to the you know the core of the love story because when when Giovanni gets home from his encounter with this family friend and and Rappaccini I guess as well and you know the family friend uh, who's just warned him off the old woman who cleans his building and and, and may also actually just be like the general property manager uh, she says that she knows a secret gate into Rappaccini's garden you know if that's worth anything to Giovanni and uh, it is so he pays her she shows him the gate and inside, he encounters Beatrice. And she is not at all creeped out by his you know, sudden and mysterious appearance in the garden. Uh, and so they hang out, they, they talk, they wander around. And Beatrice's breath smells like flowers. In fact, it smells very much like the purple flower that she calls sister. And when they come to that plant, Giovanni asks if he can pluck one of its flowers as a memento of their time together today. But of course, right, Beatrice has to dramatically yell, don't touch that, because, hey, it's super poisonous. It's super fatal, uh, even though, you know, we've all seen her touch it. And this is just too much for her. And she suddenly hides her face and just runs inside. But the thing is that she, she didn't just shout at him. She actually grabbed Giovanni's wrist in order to keep him from touching the flower. And so the next morning, he sees the mark of her fingers on his skin. It's actually like a, a purple burn. And, you know, he's still into her. And so they have more <laughs> afternoons in the garden together. And this section is is really bookended with another encounter with the, the family friend who is, uh, you know, an old doctor, we should remember. Uh, it's actually now been some time, I, I guess... Weeks, maybe could possibly be months. You know, some time has passed since the first date in the garden. It's kind of a, a montage that has happened here. But the the family friend drops by Giovanni's gloomy castle apartment to say that he has actually figured out what is up with Beatrice. And hey, it turns out she's poisonous. You know, surprise to you know to nobody really, I guess. But <laughs> what's going on is that her father has raised her to be around these poisons her whole life. And they have actually become a part of her. And they, they don't harm her because, in fact, she actually needs them and is herself poisonous to other people. So she's incapable of living a normal life. She, she certainly can't, you know, kiss anyone without killing them. But the doctor has an idea for how to cure her and, and, and rescue her from her father as well. And so he has brought a vial of some kind of liquid, some kind of medicine that Giovanni will need to give to, to Beatrice. And hey, then they can be together. Right. And the good doctor Baglioni has to protect his friend's son from the science experiment gone wrong. He's the only real local, familial, community-based connection that Giovanni has. And Baglioni is, I think, really the, the hero of this story. But, you know, Baglioni has exited stage right while all of this courtship has taken place. And then he enters again <laughs> at the end of the story with the kind of resolution to the problems that have been created by Giovanni and, and Beatrice's entanglement. And so that's fascinating. I mean, that's just kind of good writing, good good economy of character use and, and things like that. I want to bring up this bit about the landlady or the old lady, perhaps, suddenly telling Giovanni about this secret entrance to the garden once his love requires him to meet Beatrice in person and not just speak from the balcony anymore. 
And once again, I am certain that this scene is meant to evoke the illusion we've had to Vertumnus throughout this story. And this scene then keeps the story well within the bounds of the fable or fairy tale. But we're also getting a lot more kind of physical details about the garden in this section as well. And what we learn is that Dr. Rappuccini has been crossbreeding these plants and he's been creating these breeds of flowers that are super poisonous and he's really left God behind. So the garden is, is a profane creation. And yes, everything is beautiful and well cultivated, but it is poisonous to all but Beatrice. And we should point out at this point as well that Beatrice is, is no less of a botanist than her father is. She's brilliant. She has a reputation outside of the bounds of their home as being a, a great botanist, uh, a great understanding dander, I guess, of the chemical nature of these plants and their uses on par with her father. But unlike her father, she has a, a kind of naivety uh, and a beauty of soul that I think is at odds with her father's work. So she's not the pure scientist. Instead, she seems to be a person who's been conscripted to live in this in her father's corrupt world. And it's something she's trying to make the best of. Giovanni is also deeply impacted by the time he sends with Beatrice in, the, in this kind of corrupted garden as well. And he seems to have a total reversal of aesthetic intuition. Hawthorne writes that what once had looked ugly now looked beautiful to Giovanni. And so his sense of the world is literally upside down. And this is the result of perhaps Beatrice's touch that you pointed out, Glenn. And Hawthorne writes this, I'm going to quote from the story, to fill us in on, on Giovanni's state of mind. Oh, how stubbornly does love, or even that cunning semblance of love which flourishes in, in the imagination but strikes no depth of root into the heart, how stubbornly does it hold its faith until the moment comes when it is doomed to vanish into thin mist. Giovanni wrapped a handkerchief about his hand and wondered what evil thing had stung him and soon forgot his pain in a reverie of Beatrice. And this leads him, this isolation, this obsession with Beatrice, this romantic obsession uh, and his reversal of value, even if it's just aesthetic intuition, leads Giovanni to the state where he can't even bear to see others. And that's why Baglioni's intrusion here is such an awful thing for Giovanni. Giovanni can't confront the truth that he knows that he's carrying within him about his romantic obsession. Uh, and this truth is, is too easily represented and disturbed by the presence of others who see clearly. And Baglioni enters here and he uses a fable to try to get through to Giovanni, a fable that he'd heard about a woman who was poisonous, who was sent to kill Alexander the Great. And he does this, as I said, to try to get through to G Giovanni. And so Baglioni, I also want to point out here, is, is set up as a kind of ideal healer. His stories are one of the tools that he uses to heal people. And I, and I think that's an interesting inclusion in the overall structure of uh, Rappuccini's daughter here. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I had not really thought maybe about the, the contrast between Baglioni and Rappuccini, both of whom are presented as being medical doctors, being scientists who are in, engaged in and interested in, in healing people. But Baglioni is the only one that we see with any kind of bedside manner. Right. And, and Rappuccini is someone who's, you know, giving people the evil eye, doesn't think about people as people, only thinks about the knowledge that he can gain by, you know, by treating them. But Baglioni seems like, you know, he's like your kind grandfatherly doctor, right, who, who seems to really care about you as a person and has stories. He doesn't seem to make a lot of jokes, but, you know, he tells he tells <laughs> stories anyway, at least. And maybe he gives you a sucker at the end of the visit. Yeah, he knows what's uh, what, what what's good for what ails you, I think. And, and that might be a, a, a kind of <laughs> spiritual crisis or, a, uh, I don't know, some sort of moral failure, but a He's going to try to treat the whole person, not just the the empirical parts of the person. Right. And in fact, actually, while you were, were 
doing this this bit of contrast here, Brandon. I, I really kind of started to see this as kind of an archetypal Star Trek episode <laughs> where, you know, we get so many Star Trek episodes, especially in the original series and The Next Generation, where, it, you know, the planet of the week is uh, inhabited only by a mad scientist and his family. <laughs> and, you know, there's either a, a young wife who's feeling neglected or there's a young daughter. And, you know, it's either Kirk or Riker falls in love with that young woman and, you know, Bad stuff happens. It all has to get resolved. But it just made me also really feel like Baglioni is basically Bones. You know, this is an original <laughs> right. series episode, right? Sort of someone who's actually kind of like the counter model of the the mad scientist. Someone who is a you know a medical person, a scientist, you know, in in some sense, but is also like deeply emotional and uh, empathetic and really like cares for people. Yeah, there's a there's a lot going on in this story. I think every person who's ever written for TV or comics has read this this story. <laughs> feels that way. I just, I imagine Crusher in the, it would be a Crusher episode, I think primarily <laughs> in the lab, like, and she has to deconstruct the, the poison because Riker's been completely taken over by the poison. He's become the poisonous Giovanni here, uh, as we'll see in a moment. And he's not, uh, he's quarantined on the planet and they have to shoot him with a dart for, from like a mile away, but Crusher's got to get the cure. Yeah, that's an unfilmed season one or season two episode of, of TNG for sure. Well, right. As you're, you're alluding to, Brandon, here's something else that happened during Baglioni's visit, which is that he observed that Giovanni's room smells a lot like exotic flowers, uh, even though there are not any exotic flowers in there. And Giovanni now realizes that the smell was his own breath, that he has maybe become like Beatrice or, or is becoming like her at any rate. And he experiments and he discovers that, yeah, he can, he can kill flowers with his touch and he can kill insects with his breath, just like Beatrice does. And so now it, it is, it's actually the time of day for his, his regular afternoon rendezvous with Beatrice. And he's, he's pretty upset that he's been turned into a monster and he lets her know about it. And, and, and here she, she makes a speech explaining the backstory. You know, it's the backstory that we already know, right? That she grew up in this garden and so is just filled with all the poisons, but particularly the poison of this one plant with the purple flower. And we learned that this plant is her father's own creation. It's not something that existed in nature. It's a, it's a hybrid that he's created and that it first blossomed the day that Beatrice herself was born. But Giovanni is really upset. He's really angry. And he accuses her of, of having done this to him herself. And he calls her some pretty horrible names. I mean, they're, they're tame by our standards, but they would have been shocking here in the mid-19th century. And Beatrice protests, right? She says that she didn't do anything to him on purpose, that if someone did, it must have been her father, right? It must have been her father who has transformed Giovanni because she loves Giovanni. She wants to be with him somehow. And you know, now Giovanni remembers that he's actually got this antidote with him, this this vial that Baglioni gave him, and Beatrice drinks it. But just at that moment, Rappuccini runs out from the house because he's very excited that Giovanni's transformation is finally complete because now, right, Beatrice can be with someone. She can know love and have a husband and start a family because Giovanni is now immune to the poisons. But of course, Beatrice has just taken the antidote. And it turns out it's not much of an antidote. It, it, it kills her. It kills her right there in the garden. And now it turns out that Baglioni, right, this, this, this old doctor, has been watching this scene from Giovanni's window. And he's filled both with horror and also a sense of triumph. And he, he calls out, Rappuccini, Rappuccini, and is this the upshot of your experiment? And that's the end of the story. Yeah, it sure is. And here, I mean, all the weird elements of the story come to light at the very end. And that's combined with all the other uh, allegorical and uh, elusive stuff that we've been talking about. You know, Beatrice is a good Catholic girl. Her soul is good. She's one of God's creatures. How could she not be? She's human after all. But her body, her biology, her physiology, et cetera, are all hopelessly corrupted. On the empirical level, she's a poison. On the spiritual level, she is good. All of that has something to do with the creation of the poison plant somehow that she tends to, that her father maybe created for her, that blossomed, as you said, on the day that she was born. I mean, Beatrice believes that this plant is actually her sister. So anyway, we're dealing, once again, with some classical duality 
ideas here. The body is separate from the soul. Boy, is that something we've seen before in weird fiction? <laughs> uh, you know, the central metaphor of this story is made explicit and literal here at the end. Another technique of weird fiction and hard writing. I think in the discussion, maybe we'll have to untangle just what metaphor is made explicit in Beatrice's existence and, and her relationship with her plant sister. Uh, but we also see at the end here that Dr. Rappuccini believes he's done something good for his daughter in making Giovanni immune to her poisonous essence. And well, maybe he has, but it's got a s- sort of yucky feeling to it, at least for me, though maybe not in the 19th century. Giovanni is basically the first person his daughter has seen and interacted with, and Rappuccini has decided that they're going to get married no matter what without really consulting either of them. Uh, And what we're witnessing as readers is essentially a a kind of uh, teenage courtship. And What Beatrice and Giovanni have is essentially that sort of balcony courtship found in so many plays where they never touch and only long for each other. Their relationship is entirely rooted in longing and yearning and not one that has ever been outside of the walls of Beatrice's father's domain. So I don't know. That doesn't seem so great. And Rappuccini is essentially just a misguided fellow, I suppose, at the end here. But Baglioni, as we said, in contrast to Rappuccini, is the character who sees clearly and he's constantly speaking in asides and stage whispers and stuff to let us know what we're supposed to, as readers, uh, get from this story. And finally, you know, I, I, I have to mention here that Beatrice calls Giovanni out at the end of the story as well. This is an important point, I think. She does acknowledge that she's poisonous and she didn't do it on purpose, but she asks if Giovanni's hatred of her revealed by his awakening to the full scope of the situation, doesn't reveal that, hey, maybe you carried around a more serious type of poison than I have. And so hatred now shows up in the mix in terms of the emotions that are associated with this poisonous essence. And what I'm left with here is that this story just has a really surprising scope for what is essentially a a fable. And that's really what we'll be shining a light on next time in our discussion episode. Yeah, there is a ton to unpack in this story. It's going to be a, you know, a pretty involved discussion episode, I think, and I'm, I'm excited to get to it. So uh, let's do that. Let's uh, go ahead and sign off for this one. Uh, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to support the network if you can. So head over to Patreon as well. Check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia and consider supporting us if you're not already. And head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of Rappuccini's daughter. Let us know, you know, if you think Beatrice or Poison Ivy is cooler. <laughs> you know, who's the more interesting <laughs> villain, I guess. So next time we will be back with a discussion episode about this story. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.